We're going to read the scripture. We're going to read in Romans chapter 3. Billy read part of this chapter this morning. Uh, this overlaps. It's not exactly the same. We're going to read from chapter 3, verse 9. And we're going to read through to verse 26. Paul is dealing with Jew and Gentile and the need of both for Christ. And he speaks in verse 9 in this way of Romans 3. What then? Are we, that's the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, with their tongues they have practised deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, amen. May God bless his word to us. You notice that faith is mentioned there through faith in verse 22, and through faith in verse 25, and the one who has faith in Jesus in verse 26. So I think we see how it is that we come to share in these great benefits and blessings as it is through Faith. Well, I've called this title of this address Justification by Faith at the Centre. It should be at the centre, it's at the centre of our gospel, it's at the centre of our thinking today, and it's certainly at the centre of this sermon, though I have five points and they're uneven, as you'll see, but it does consist, it is the third point where he really gets justification. Uh, Billy and I agree that we could happily both speak from this passage in different ways, and so we have. And I've got four reasons to begin with in introduction why it's fitting that we look at this theme today. And the first and part of the second he's covered, so I'll just briefly say, uh, Tuesday is Reformation Day, it's Reformation Sunday today, the 500th 
and sixth anniversary of Luther's 95 Theses. Why did he nail them up for debate on the castle church door at Wittenberg, which is where you nailed things. It was the notice board for the, for the town. Well, because he learned that justification by faith is the centre of the gospel. That's one reason why it's fitting. The second is it's a church anniversary. It wasn't meant to be Billy and I here, of course, so we had to stand in for our book speaker. But it's a good time to reassert the defining doctrine of Protestantism on a church anniversary, especially as it's under so much attack, even from some who would call themselves evangelicals, and there is much lack of confidence in it, there is much lack of understanding of it, there is much lack of understanding of the need vigorously to proclaim justification by faith. Not to defend it, to proclaim it. Thirdly, in this passage we see it's fitting to do this today because some were at the God's Glory, Our Joy conference and there are papers there on propitiation and particular redemption and under part two we're going to come to those because they're here in our text and how these fit in with justification in our salvation. And fourthly, some of us have been at home Bible study groups or Bible study groups and we've been looking at Colossians 1 and verse 28 and it struck me as we were looking at that with one group this week that Paul says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, it means complete and mature, in Christ Jesus. We have to warn as well as teach. And the preacher's job is to do both. Uh, in all wisdom, which is not his wisdom, it's God's wisdom. And to the aim is that we are mature believers, that we are not blown about by every wind of doctrine. And evangel evangelicalism, sadly, is, is running to seed. Running to seed in errors of Arminianism and of sentimentality and of man-centeredness. I don't have to prove that to you here. Those who are here from choice this evening, and I don't think anyone press-ganged you in at the door, uh, you are probably here saying, yes, we're at this sort of church because sadly there are others we wouldn't want to go to because they are not preaching the whole counsel of God. Or they are those which are, are covering these things so briefly, but mainly they're about making people feel good or get by. And we need, we are not like that. We take a stand not to be like that. And here is the reason, in a sense the main reason, why we're not like that. And so we do have these five points, uh, but they will be of uneven length. Point four will hardly be there because Billy covered it this morning, so I'll just mention it. First, the need for justification. Why do we need God to declare us righteous? Because we are not righteous, and that's a real problem. In chapter 3 here, verse 9, we are all under sin. In verse 19, the whole world is guilty before God. And in verse 20, no one will be justified even by keeping God's perfect law. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Not that we are as bad as we could possibly be, but total in a worldwide sense, as well as in every part of our being. All are condemned by the holy law of God. Verse 23, all, Paul's talking, the context is Jew and Gentile, i.e. everybody, all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. None are justified in God's holy sight. God cannot look on one human being and say they are actually righteous. He could, of course, with the Lord Jesus, but we're leaving him out of this at this point. But of us. And Paul says in verse 21, the right, but now the righteousness of God apart from law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The Old Testament has spoken of this. Why does he use the word now? Well, because back in chapter 1 and verse 18, as he begins after his introduction, he speaks like this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that is the context. He's already said that, and he's proved it. He's proved we're all sinners, therefore we're all under God's wrath. And he says, but now, meaning in Christ, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. God's righteousness, he says, is seen as well as his wrath. But we must not say, oh, that means we don't have to think about the wrath of God. Indeed, here we have in this passage, and sometimes it's helpful to see this in the scriptures, where you see what we might call bookends, where you have a concept that's here, and then later on it's here, and you think the bit in the middle is, is within that, uh, and that helps us to understand the relationships of what's happening. There's a great danger, isn't there, in only reading the word in very small bits. Well, Paul is spoken of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. Chapter 1. In chapter 9, after he's declared the glories of the gospel up to chapter 8, he speaks again of the wrath of God. He says in chapter 9 and verse 22, What if God... Wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, prepare for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. God is righteously wrathful against sin. Billy said that this morning. Uh, but this, this uncomfortable truth, because we don't like thinking about that, is downplayed and denied by many in the present climate. And you speak, and uh, you hear spoken of, and, and I'm sure I've done this and you have, we talk of hell, and we talk of it, instead of using the word, we speak of a lost eternity, or a Christless eternity. Where do we get that from? What did the Lord Jesus himself say? He says it is a place where their fire does not, is not quenched and their worm does not die. He was much more pointed than we often are. We need to come to grips if we're going to understand the gospel with this awesome truth of the wrath of God, which is clearly said to be on everyone. Ephesians 2 and verse 3, we're told Paul writes to Christians and from verse 4 he's writing about God's great grace and salvation. But before that he says, uh, this is where we are before God saves us. Ephesians 2 verse 1, we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. He says, every human being by nature is a child of wrath, under the wrath of God. You may have heard the saying, you may have used the saying, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Well, let me tell you, you are wrong. This is utterly refuted by the verses we already quoted in Romans and by many, many other verses as well. You remember how Paul writes 1 Thessalonians in verse chapter 1 and verse 10 and says that Christ is coming, God raised him from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In Psalm 5 and verse 5, God speaks in this way, this is the psalmist, as a prophet, the boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. Psalm 7 and verse 11. God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. You have the prophet Nahum. Nahum 1 and verse 2. And uh, he says, after verse 1 the introduction, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? And that's on earth. And what about when we die? When sinners die, they go into what the scripture, what Christ calls the unquenchable fire, where it said of them that they weep, which we can fully understand, and that they gnash their teeth. To gnash the teeth in scriptures is a sign of anger. Jesus is saying that those who are lost will always be angry with God. The wicked, sinners, live in anger at their creator, wishing he wasn't there. They die in anger at their creator, and they will forever exist in anger at their creator, and therefore, because they are angry with their creator, which is a sin, they will always be punished under the wrath of God. We must not downplay this truth. Because if we do, we start on the slippery slope of saying that the gospel is not as vital as it is. This is the unpalatable truth which God declares and Christ, we know, spoke of hell more than anyone else in the scriptures. So there's the need for justification. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to it all and on all who believe. And how does that come about? Well, let's go on to verse 24. That those who are saved are justified freely, being justified freely by his grace, through the, by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Now, you see, those are because words, aren't they? By, through, whom. It might be helpful to turn them into therefore words, to read from the bottom to the top, as it were, to start with the foundation. 
we are being told we are justified through redemption and we're redeemed through the one who is the propitiation. Let's go the other way around. Let's start with propitiation. I want to say more about this, God willing, next Sunday morning when we're back in First John. But it's the propitiation through Christ because he himself is the propitiation. Whom God set forth as a propitiation. What does that mean? It means that here is God in his wrath, looking upon sinners in in his eternal counsel. And how are sinners going to be forgiven? How are sinners going to be made acceptable to God? And there has to be something, someone, some way, in which the wrath of God, if it's going to not fall upon you and me, must fall somewhere else. And that is that it is falls upon Christ. It fell upon him on the cross. And he poured out the propitiation is through his blood, and it's clearly talking of him as the sacrifice. The God-appointed sacrifice, the God-accepted sacrifice. So that we can be forgiven. We can be forgiven because God's wrath does not fall upon us. Because it fell upon him. And that was clearly set forth, Paul says here, witnessed by the law and the prophets. Because at the centre of the law was the sacrificial system. And at the centre of the sacrificial system was that great day of atonement. But the word really is the word propitiation. It's the word for covering, which is, which is the concept here. And you know what happened. And the high priest had to offer the blood of the sacrifices which God appointed and as he offered them, he, having offered them, he took that blood into the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. And he sprinkled it on what is called the mercy seat. But again, it's the same word as propitiation. It's the propitiation cover. And under that golden cover was the law which the people had broken. And the golden cover was there and when the blood was sprinkled on it, it became, as it were, effectual. And God who was pictured in the, and remember he gave the design for the tabernacle, but he was pictured as, that. well, there were the two cherubim and the idea is that represents where God is in heaven with the cherubim, between the cherubim. And God looks down and there's the law and in between is the sprinkled blood. And the people were to wait. The high priest would go in. He would sprinkle the blood and he would come out again. In later Judaism, apparently the people used to cheer when he came out. Though they weren't told to do that, but that's okay. Because the high priest had come out alive. God had accepted the sacrifice. The sins were forgiven. And it's all, of course, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation. He is the one who bore sin in his own body, our sin, upon the cross. And so in propitiation, the idea is of a movement, a movement from Christ the Son to God the Father, the Son interposing his precious blood, as another hymn writer says, The son being the propitiation, the wrath of God poured out on him. 
Christ comes in our place and offers himself to God and God pours his wrath upon him, poured it on Calvary. And therefore that movement from Christ to God brings about our salvation. But, but how? Well, we go backwards from propitiation through the redemption, verse 24, that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation then leads to redemption. This is a movement in the opposite direction. This is a movement then from God to us. God redeems us in Christ. A, a rich word. A word where slaves are set free by the payment of a price. And the price was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. And the price was his own death. And his own blood. And that redeems a people to himself. I lay down my life for the sheep. The doctrine of particular redemption. That we can say if by grace we have come through faith into Christ. He paid the price for me. And those in Christ... How are we in Christ who can say that? It is being justified free by God's grace. It is free and sovereign grace. The sacrifice of Christ has happened. It's happened once for all. It's never going to happen again. How can you and I, born 2,000 years later, gain from that? How can we who are children of wrath stop being children of wrath? How is it that we can gain the benefit of the propitiation how is it we can be redeemed? How is it? It's because God works by grace in us. To bring us to do what? To bring us to faith in Christ. There it is. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus, verse 22, to all and on all who believe. There it is in verse 25. Propitiation by his blood through faith. Verse 26, just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. How can you have faith in Christ? Well, what is faith? Faith is trust. Faith is, we can define it as, John Murray, I think, says this, self-commitment to Christ. Faith is giving up on yourself and turning to him and crying out to him to save you. And how are you, a sinner dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 verse 1, going to do that? Only because God works by grace in your heart. Only because he changes you. Only because you are born again of the Spirit, by the Spirit of God. Only because God from all eternity planned that at a particular moment in time, he would be gracious to you, the sinner. Remember that man? In the parable, God be grace, merciful to me, a sinner. But the word is actually propitiated. He's in the temple. His sacrifices are all around. The bleating of the animals, the smell, the dust, the flies, the whole thing which says sin is a terrible thing and it's still not paid for. This was Christ before he died speaking this and he has this tax collector beating his breast God be propitiated to me a sinner and that is what we come to we sang of that in our second hymn doesn't it free grace awoke us legal fears trembling to die 
wondering how we can be freed from our guilt. And then God mercifully revealed Christ to us. And we came by God's grace to trust in him. And so we came to benefit in the redemption that comes through the propitiation made. And what does that mean? Thirdly, here we come to the centre. Remember, point four was short, don't worry. The glory of justification. Here it is. The righteousness. Remember, we we struggle, don't we, in English, because we have two sets of words from two different languages, one based on the concept of right, righteousness, and the other based on the concept of just, justice. And they mean the same thing, and it's a struggle uh, to to translate all them all. You can't use always the justice words. You can't always use the righteousness words. They're mixed up together, but remember they're the same word. The righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God, verse 21 and 22, so that we are righteousness Justified, declared not guilty, declared innocent in God's sight, verse 24. That's the point, isn't it? It's a declaration. When we come by grace to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's gift, he gives us righteousness. We call it imputation. He counts it to us. He counts Christ's righteousness to us. Or we could put it more accurately. We are counted by God's grace as we trust in Christ. We are spiritually united to Christ. And therefore we are counted as being in Christ. The main description, the most frequent description of the Christian in the New Testament. We are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's our spiritual reality and our spiritual status. And because we are in Christ, we are counted as if we were him. We are counted as those who have lived what we haven't lived, the perfect life that he lived, under God's law, obeying it in all its fullness. I always do what pleases him, he could say. And more, we are counted as having died his death, the death where God's wrath was poured upon him. Because we are counted in Christ. Romans 6 and verse 11. Likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. We are counted. We are in Christ. We can say I am dead to sin. I am alive to God. As Christ always was. Or Paul in Romans 3, uh, Colossians 3 and verse 3 who says, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Who is you, Christian? You are one who is hidden in Christ. Hidden from God's wrath. Hidden from the punishment of sin. Hidden from eternal death. So you are declared righteous, as Christ is. Imputation, yes. Counting us having the righteousness of Christ but more incorporation into Christ and therefore imputation. And so where are we? Well, this is talking of our status, isn't it? This is our status before God. The law of God can no longer condemn us. 
Because as we have been singing in our last hymn, payment God cannot twice demand. Because that would be unjust, wouldn't it? You can't demand someone pays you twice when they should pay you once. First at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. No, if I'm in Christ, then his, he has paid the price. God cannot demand it of me. And of course, does not want to. That is why he has sent his son to die for you in the first place. You may again have heard the phrase, and people say, Let, oh, try to understand justification like this way. Think of it like this. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Well, that's, it's not wrong, but it's inadequate. Arminians can teach that. Because think about it. If your state tonight was just that you were as if you never sinned, who had never sinned? Adam had never sinned before he sinned. Do you really want to be only in the status before God? of where Adam was in paradise. Because Adam fell and so will you. And if that is all that Jesus' death brings you back into, well, Jesus' death has brought you into that. So if you fall, if you sin, where is the sacrifice? Christ's death, you can't say. He's, he's just brought you back into that position. There is no more sacrifice for sin. And that is, and it's worth remembering on Reformation Sunday, that is the basis, in fact, of the whole Roman Catholic error on this. Or not so much the basis, that's not the word I want. This is the result. The, the Roman Catholics would teach, and they certainly taught in Luther's day, baptism washes away all your sin, makes you pure, makes you like Adam. Billy mentioned this. And... What happens? Oh, what do you sin? Oh, well, how do I get forgiven? Well, it can't be the death of Christ because that's been applied to me in baptism and, and now I've sinned. And so the whole system grows up that, I, uh, uh, that, that as they would teach that you have to have a priest and you have to confess to the priest and you have to do the penance the priest prescribes. A second plank, as they would call it, to save you when the first plank is broken, which is your baptism because of your sin. And the whole thing brings you into a position where you can never know that you are forgiven. And that is not the gospel, is it? And so when you think of justification, if you want a little phrase to help you to remember what it means, don't think it's just as if I'd never sinned. Think it's just as if I'd become Christ, because that is the reality. That's how God, brother, sister, Christian is treating you tonight and always will. It's as if you had become Christ. We died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And as the hymn writer says, hidden beyond the reach of harm. The verdict of the last day, where all stand before God and he pronounces acquittal or condemnation, the verdict of the last day, for us as believers, by the grace of God, has been brought forward, brought forward to the moment of our faith, as we trusted in Christ, and we have been declared acquitted. And if someone says, when were your sins forgiven? The answer is, they were forgiven that moment that Christ died upon the cross. That's when they were forgiven. When you enter into the benefit of that forgiveness is when you trust in Christ. 
and your status is changed and you're no longer a child of wrath. And you become what God from eternity planned you to be. A child of God. Fourthly, very briefly, this was all covered by Billy. God is thus vindicated. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness halfway through verse 25. Because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see what the puzzle is? The puzzle is, if God hasn't always punished sin the moment it's been been committed, if God has allowed sinners to live, is he unjust? And the answer is, of course he's not unjust. And how do we see he's not unjust? Well, we see he's just in that for God to forgive your sin and my sin, he had to lay it on his son and punish him in our place. If God was unjust, he could just wink at sin and say, don't worry about it. But God is a just and righteous God. And the full price had to be paid and it was paid by the Son. God acted in a way in which enables him to justify the ungodly who have faith in his Son. And therefore the cross is a great demonstration of the righteousness of God. And that leads to the fifth point. And you might think we're near the end. Well, we are. But the fifth point is the application. And I've got seven of them, so they are short. Don't worry. You see, you never believe the preacher. No, that's not true, is it? The first is this. Always believe the preacher. No, that's not true either, is it? Believe the preacher when he's preaching the truth. You have a word. Test it. The first response. Understand these things. Meditate upon them. Think about them. I don't know what plan you use for reading the scripture. But I will say to you, and I've quoted from the prophet Nahum, so I'm not, you're not going to criticize, I'm not criticizing him. If you have a reading plan that means you read Nahum as often as you read Romans, you need a different reading plan. There are things that are so precious you have to study. Be much in the Gospels. The Gospels can be neglected. But be much in, in, the, in the passages which speak of God's love and God's salvation. And you often need to go back to those, don't you? Much in the Psalms, there are other places too. But, but understand, meditate upon these things. Secondly, believe them. Indeed, I would go further. Absorb these truths. Meditate on them. Read, mark, learn and inwardly digest so that you absorb these truths and they become part of your your thinking which controls everything else. Indeed, I would go further than absorb them. Be absorbed by them so they control your life. We are not all Martin Luther's, but we can learn from Martin Luther. When he understood justification by faith, it transformed his life in an ongoing way because it was always that which was at the centre God has declared me righteous in Christ. My sins are forgiven. My sins cannot, never will condemn me. I am a child of God. Be like Luther. Thirdly, as a result of that, rejoice in the great truth of justification by faith. Rejoice with exceeding joy. Rejoice in God's love to you as a sinner. That he has at the cost of the death of his son, so worked, and at the amazing reality of the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in your sinful heart, that he has 
brought you from under his wrath into his eternal love. What love this is. I will anticipate myself next week, hopefully, in 1 John 4 and verse 9. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Where do we find love? Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. All other love is, is tiny compared with that. Rejoice in God's love. Fourthly, be assured then of your salvation. Be assured. Have full assurance of faith. Your sins are, were, not are, your sins were on Christ as he paid for them on the cross, so they are not on you. They never can be on you. It doesn't mean that you should be careless. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't mourn over your sin. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't confess your sin to God. It doesn't mean that as you commit sins, that that will not have some deleterious effect on your life, on your relationship with God, on your happiness. It doesn't mean any of those things, but it does mean whatever else is going on in your life and your sins and your relationship with God there is never ever going to be a time when those sins come up against you in condemnation. They are forgiven. You are forgiven through the blood of Christ, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We have redemption in his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Paul says elsewhere. And you have it. And it's yours. And God has given you. That's why it's yours. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't deserve it. You couldn't seek it. You couldn't think of it unless God had opened your mind and your hearts. And it is yours. And it never ever won't be yours. And Satan is so active, isn't he? In trying to get Christians to think in some way, perhaps somehow, my sins will still be that which can be raised against me. No. No. Christ has already borne them. He has borne the guilt. He has borne the punishment. He has borne the wrath. He has been made a curse for you. Be assured of your eternal salvation. Fifthly, proclaim these things then. And proclaim them including, but not only, but including to people who, who are Christians, who say they're Christians, and, and in the judgment of charity we have to believe are Christians, but those who are unsure about these things, how tenderly we need sometimes to lead people to see these things. It's not all proclamation from a pulpit, is it? Proclaim this great truth of justification by faith to those who are unsure of it. To those who are untaught of it, sadly, in their churches. Even to those who deny it. Declare it to them. And if someone says, what is your church? What does it stand for? What does it believe? You can answer that question in different ways, but it's not a bad way to say, we are those who believe that we are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And if you have an untaught Christian, they will say, what, what, what does that mean? And you can tell them, unpack it. Sixth application. 
We are going to be seeking to call, we are seeking to call, we've been seeking to call for a long time, a new pastor. What we need to say, isn't he, of such a man, and the scripture tells us to say this, is he a full word man? We're told that the pastor must be one who preaches the whole counsel of God. We must say, we must find out that the things we need to find out that what someone believes become more important as we get from the periphery to the centre. And this is the centre. Have we someone who believes in the wrath of God upon sin? Have we someone who believes standing before us in our pulpit as he's preaching, seeking to be our pastor, someone who believes in the propitiation of Christ, in the full redemption that is in Christ, in justification by faith, is he certain? Is he sure? Does he glory, not in the wrath of God, but in the, does he believe that and glory in the way that God has dealt with this? Does he grip him? Is he, in a mini sense, a Martin Luther? Is he someone who, where, the, where you say, what's the centre? What's the centre of what you believe? What, if you're going to preach the gospel to us, what is it? And this is where he is. Because we have to, don't we? Otherwise, if we have someone, and God has provided men like this graciously over the years, and we need someone else like that, whatever else he's like. And the last application before we sing is this. We, and we need reminding on this anniversary day, this Reformation Sunday, we must keep the faith, not the man in the pulpit only, not Billy, not his successor, we must keep the faith. Is the doctrine of justification by faith, as you go out through that door, I hope it's ringing in your ears, but is it raining in your hearts? Because that's where it has to be. And may God be glorified. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the amazing salvation that is ours. And we pray that we might go away rejoicing in it and learning and desiring and hungering to learn more of it, to understand it better and to proclaim it to all who we can. To say to all, behold the Lamb. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb who pays the price. The Lamb who has once for all for sinners slain. And proclaiming, trust in him. Commit yourself to him. Call on his name. And we can say that and we can testify to the truth of these glorious truths. And help us to do so. And never to be moved from the faith held out in the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name.